And the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to pick one up over on the resource table so you can follow along. Uh, Ruth, if you're unfamiliar, don't feel guilty. It is earlier in the Bible. It is after the book of Judges. So we're going to be reading um, the book of Ruth for the next month. As I mentioned, this is Advent season for us, so we're going to be studying uh, Ruth. If you did not, as I mentioned earlier, we are uh, going through as a church family, for those who are interested, a devotional following along through the book of Ruth. Uh, We ran out of the physical copies of the devotional But if you see me or you see Pastor Andy, we can get you the uh, link uh, to get it online for free. So if you want the e-copy of it. All right, so we are at Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go away, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly Bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your daughter, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also of anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. And God, as we consider this story from so many years ago, we ask God that you would give us divine light, that you would help us to see how this is part of the very bigger picture of bringing your son. And in the midst of all of us, help us to see that God, you are always at work. You never stop. You're always carrying out your plans and purposes. May we find comfort in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a prequel is an installment of a series or books which describes actions that occurred earlier from a story that we're very familiar with. For example, in the book and movie world, there's J.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. So if you're familiar at all with the Lord of the Rings books and, and movies, uh, the, the particular uh, Lord of the Rings story centers a lot around uh, this young man named Frodo who's going to end up destroying this ring and everything that entails there. But there is a prequel story to the Lord of the Rings. It is called The, the Hobbit. And in The Hobbit, Frodo's uncle has his own adventures and story, and he's actually the one that ends up giving him the ring to be destroyed. You see, the prequel in that context tells the story behind the story. It gives us the background info that helps us maybe even better understand the original story that we love so much. It shows the events that led to that story. And what we see in the book of Ruth it's going to feel a whole lot like a prequel to the Christmas story. It's the story behind the story. Before the birth of the King of Kings, before Israel had a single king, God's people were going through hard times. There was little to no hope, and in the midst of the suffering, God blesses a family with a child that's going to carry out his sovereign plans, and purposes of redemption. Sound like a familiar story? And that's what we're going to consider, the story behind the story as we unpack Ruth. If you're a note taker, we're going to begin our time by looking at the providential context. We're going to look at the providential context. We're going to see the circumstances that we find ourselves in redemptive history in light of God's people and what God is doing. Secondly, we're going to consider the painful choice In chapter 1, there's a defining moment for three people, three women. They have a choice to make, and we're going to see their choice and how uh, they they act accordingly. And then we're going to wrap up our time today as we look at the purposeful climax, as we see at the end of it, from one person's perspective, God is kind of not doing anything. But from a biblical perspective, God is doing a whole lot in our passage today. So let, let's begin. Let's get started at uh, verse 1 as we look at the providential context. 
as, as I've said, and, and I think Andy would testify, we're really excited about going through Ruth. Uh, I've been at Covenant. We started church 18 years ago. So there is a sense where there's a familiarity with Christmas time. So when you do Advent, there's only so many biblical narratives in the Gospels that talk about it. So there is a sense sometimes there's a little bit of a pressure on, on the part of us as pastors figuring out what in the world are we going to preach on. At the same time, you still want it to be relevant. You don't want to make something out of nothing and say, oh, you see Christmas in this. But as we were looking and stuff, Andy came along and he found this devotional and he said, this would be a different approach. And, and that's kind of where we are. But the, the beauty of Ruth is it is a book of hope. So if anybody here is discouraged today, Ruth is for you. It debunks the myth that no good can come from tragedy. That there's a theme in, throughout the book that it's a theme of perseverance, of staying the course because God is good. And God is just, and God will carry out his plans for you and I. So that's the providential context we're going to start unpacking. First of all, let's look at the setting. Read verse 1 to 2 again with me. It says, In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Erephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. That's only two verses, but a lot of stuff just went on in that reading. First of all, notice the difficult circumstances. Now we know in the book of Judges, because it says right there, this is when the judges ruled. Well, what was life like during the time of the judges? Judges 21-25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So here was a cycle that took place in the book of Judges. They abandoned, God's people abandoned their faith. God brought an opposing army, nation. They came, they would oppress God's people. It would awaken them to repentance. They would plead for help. God would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver them. And then the whole cycle over time would repeat. They would abandon again, opposing army, judge raised, delivered, faithful for a season. Again, but, but here's the, the trouble with judges. It gets worse. Things don't get better. It gets worse and worse. And then if you, you study the book of Judges, the last few chapters of Judges are heartbreaking. Why is that? Because at the end of Judges, God's people are as bad, this is crazy to think, as Sodom and Gomorrah. They've reached rock bottom. And it's in this kind of a context that we find the book of Ruth. Not only are they in the book of Judges, Something happens. What is it? It's a famine. Now we need to understand, this is not the result of global warming. This is not the, a famine in the Bible, we need to understand, was God judging a nation? God, not saying that every time, but primarily speaking, a famine was God's judgment upon a people. It was an alarm. Who here has any alarms in their house? We've got a freezer that seems to always be going off because somebody doesn't shut the door. And you'll hear this beeping and like, 
I'll be sitting there and you'll hear this ding, ding, ding. And I start going nuts. I say, I swear I hear a noise. And then all of a sudden, yep, freezer, that. We have a carbon monoxide alarm that would signal if carbon monoxide's high in our house. Uh, sump pump saved us a lot of money last year with an alarm uh, because it cued that the one thing wasn't working, was able to, to get that fixed. We have a fire alarm. Famines in the Bible were alarms from God. It was to awaken the homeowner. Leviticus 26.3 says this, If you follow my decrees, people, and you're careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its seasons, and the ground will yield its fruits, and the trees of the field their fruit. So he's saying, if you're faithful, if you're obedient, you're going to have a harvest. Praise the Lord. But then Deuteronomy 28.30 says, unfaithfulness, you will plant a vineyard, but you will not enjoy its fruit. In other words, I will bring famine upon your land because of your unfaithfulness. Well, does God use circumstances in your life to get your attention? Do you see that he's doing something? I think we sometimes fail to appreciate that maybe that trial, maybe that situation that you find yourselves in is God being gracious. That he's bringing this adversity because he wants to get you awakened. But not only the difficult circumstances, look at the deliberate choice here. So famine, God's judgment, what do you think the response is supposed to be when God's people see a famine? Repent. Repent. Turn to God. Acknowledge their sin and repent. Have you ever, either you or somebody in your life, I, I bet this has happened, They've learned the wrong lesson. There's been times I preached and something I said, literally the opposite of what I said was what the parishioner gleaned from the sermon. And I'm like, oh, that's, that was not what I was trying to communicate. Immediately I go home, I'm like, did I say that? I, it would be the idea of like a kid in school cheats on the exam and they get home and they say, I hope you've learned your valuable lesson. And the kid looks at you and says, yeah, I need to get better at cheating. I need to not get caught next time. That would not be the lesson you should be gleaning. Elimelech is not learning the lesson. Do you understand? That, that's the problem in this passage. Rather than learn the lesson to repent, like we have turned from God, what is going on? No, what he does is he takes matters into his own hands. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix it ourselves. So he leaves, and this is significant. The land of Israel to God's people, especially at this time, it was the promised land. It was the place of God's presence. It's the place that we know in 2023 that Jesus was born. Bethlehem, Matthew 2. It actually means, Bethlehem means the house of bread. So they're going to leave the house of bread to go find bread. But it's not just that they're leaving the promised land. Here's the kicker. They're going to Moab. What's the big deal about Moab? Moab was descendants of Lot. They were known idolaters. When God's people entered back into the, the, the promised land, they did not help. That's the story of Balaam where they actually hired Balaam to curse God, uh, to curse God's people. They didn't because, he didn't because God can work through anything. 
So much so that in Deuteronomy 23, God said that nobody was to marry a Moabite. And if they married a Moabite, that person could not, the Moabite, they could not come in to the assembly for 10 generations, which would roughly be about 400 years. The other thing with Moab is they were, uh, they worshiped the god of Chemosh, which included uh, prostitution, at the, at the temple, and child sacrifice. So they turned away from God to about as vile and wicked of a people as you could imagine. And then if that wasn't enough, they go on and they marry two Moabite women, which God had said, don't do that stuff. Be set apart are we much different than him, though? Them? Are we prone to take matters into our hands when we have a trouble, big or small? How often is our default to pray, to seek God's face? Or how often is, I've got this, I can handle it? Do we compromise often in our choices? Because that's not only the setting, there's such sorrow in the passage it says, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her, with her two sons. They took the Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malin and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's not just depressing times of the, of the judges. It's not just God's judgment and a famine. She begins to reap from their foolish sowing. They turned from God and God gave them what it looks like when you have God out of the equation. There's great pain. Notice the personal tragedy that, that struck her. It appears as we get back later and there's this buzz when she gets back in to Bethlehem that she seems to have been a pretty prominent family. So they were well known. They were probably fairly affluent. Mind you, a famine hits the affluent as much as the, the poor. But she goes there, she's married, she's got two boys. Apparently they find food. It seems like they're doing well, right? And then all of a sudden, over 10 years, things go horribly wrong. It reminds me of the story of Jack Whitaker. He won $315 million lottery, a Powerball. Apparently he had, owned, he had been worth like $17 million before even winning the lottery. We well, took the single payment of 113 million. In four years, he had, I believe, filed for bankruptcy. He was an alcoholic, went through divorce, maybe divorces, dealt with theft. His granddaughter overdosed on drugs. One of his best friends was found dead. His life fell apart when it seemed like he was on the mountaintop. And I think Naomi could feel that and felt relatable to that. That I came and I was, I was full and I, you know, I had my husband and I, I had my two children. It's kind of what Job, we see in the book of Job in the beginning. He's got all of this stuff. He's got wealth. He's got his children. And he goes and says, I came from my mother's room naked and naked. I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And she's left there with no grandchildren no sons in a male-dominated, I don't think we appreciate the predicament that Naomi is in. They didn't have a life insurance policy for her. 
Her life insurance policy would have been her son's taking care of her. And she lost all of that. In the midst of all of it, there's another thing we need to be reminded of that should be troubling as we read this. Because when we know the bigger picture, the lineage of the king is at stake. Genesis 3.15, we know it's it's the first gospel. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, but she's going to have one who's, you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. So that is the promise of a savior. But as we get into the end of Genesis, we also hear in, in, in the blessing given to Judah that there's going to be a king. He's going to be the, the one who crushes the head. But right here in this moment, we've got this line going on, and there's no kid. Like, it seems like God's promises are, are, are starting to be in stake. Are you in a season of sorrow? Maybe it's a health crisis, relationship turmoil, financial concerns. That's why I said this is a, this is a relevant book for you and I. But not only is there great pain, here's the kicker. This is God's providence. This is God's providence as she is going to say time and again in this chapter, God did this. God allowed this to happen to Naomi. I mean, think about it. Like, as I was mentioning with the, with, with the alarm on our freezer, it's always who left the freezer open. So much so that I've considered, I haven't yet, or maybe I have, installing a camera in that room. Because nobody fesses. Nobody like, wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. Often in the freezer are popsicles. Like I've had a kid with popsicle all over his mouth, clearly ate a popsicle in recent memory, and the freezer's open, and he's like, I don't know. No idea. Well, you read this chapter, this is not a who did it. Who did it? God did this. God took her husband from her. God took her two sons from her and left her with these two Moabite women. That is God's dealing. Psalm 42, 3. Psalm 42. Listen to this, because the psalmist gets it. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers. Who breakers are we talking about? God's breakers. And your waves have gone over me. God is not the author of evil, but what is done, what happens to Naomi in this chapter is God's dealing. Was God in your current situation? Can you trust him? So we see this providential context. There's suffering. There is sorrow. But in the midst of all of it, here's like that silver lining. We see good news. That God's grace, and we need to understand, she did not have social media. All right? Naomi didn't look online. Nobody emailed or texted her and said, hey, back home, God is visited. Somehow, some way, God had ultimately allowed her to find out that something's good going on back home. So she heads back, and her daughter-in-laws have a choice to make. First of all, one leaves. Read verse 6 with me. 
So they arose with their daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Then they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet in my son in my womb, sons in my womb, that they could become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am I'm too old to have a husband. If I should only have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is far exceedingly bitter to me that your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Notice the big choice that Orpah has to make. Now, we, in that, this little section, we see a variation of a Hebrew word 12 times. It's shub. It, it's to return. It's to turn back. It's to go back. It's to breathe back. So there's a lot of turning and returning going on in this chapter. But here's what we miss in the English translation of it. It's the main word in the Old Testament used to describe turning to Yahweh, to repent, to be converted. And I think it's significant because we need to understand the choice Orpah is making in this moment is a whole lot more of whether or not she follows her mother-in-law. I mean, you and I, we make a lot of mundane choices. You might even be thinking after church, what are we going to have for lunch? Should we go for pizza? Should we go for burgers? Those, those kind of mundane choices. You wake up in the morning, you look in your closet like, what shirt should I wear? Should I go blue? Should I go gray? I mean, there's, those are those mundane choices. This is not a mundane choice that Orpah is making here. Matthew twelve thirty. Whoever is not with me is against me. This is a choice of, do I follow Yahweh or do I follow my way? Do I follow the world? Do I go back to the gods, little gods, of my family and my nation or do I follow Yahweh? And I think we all have that choice every day. Who are we following? Do we follow God or do we follow not God? You see the choices you have to make. But not only do we see the big choice, we see the bad convincing. And it's a little troubling if you, if you don't realize what's going on. Naomi is convincing her daughter-in-laws to not follow Yahweh. It's, it's, it's disturbing. Like, what, what are you doing, Naomi? I, I, have you ever encountered an anti-salesman? What I mean is you're going to buy something, you have a need for it, you want the product, and the person does everything in their power to get you to not buy it. Like, you're the worst salesperson ever. You understand what I mean? It's like that, that this is kind of what she is. Like, she's not winning salesman of the year, saleswoman of the year. She is, uh, so listen to her sales pitch. Number one, 
I have no other sons for you to marry. Now that's a fact, but we need to understand the custom of the day is the brother of a deceased brother would step up and marry and end up having children with the widow so that the line would go on, that, that there would be a, a lineage. Matthew twenty two twenty four. he says, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So she's saying, best case scenario, old Naomi gets married today. I end up being with my husband. I get pregnant. We wait until I have the baby, and then I have the baby. The baby grows up. We're talking. I know Bible times, they got married a little bit younger than you and I. But, like, you're still waiting a while before you're going to be able to marry my hypothetical son. So what she says is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to remain widowless. You're going to remain a widow and childless forever. Do you really want that, Orpah? Do you really want that, Ruth? And then second reason. I think this is the more troubling of the reasons. Because what she's saying there, there's, it, on the surface, it seems kind of factual. That seems like the natural progression of what would probably be happening. But the second reason in her sales pitch, if you follow me, you will continue to see God strike me with suffering. You will continue to see God's hand upon me and association. He's probably going to strike you with more suffering. Ten years she's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's been on the wrong end of God's favor. It's what Job's wife says. Job 2.9, his wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She, I'm not saying she's cursing God. She hasn't reached to that level of despair, but she is, is heavily troubled by what has God done. So much so that she uses a term here that we've used recently. Last week we used it. We used it in First and Second Samuel. It's Hesed, Remember? She says, may God, may Yahweh show hesed, covenant love and faithfulness to you. Where? In Moab is how dis disoriented Naomi has become. She's saying, I want you to go back. You find your husband. You know, go back, uh, get married, have kids, go back to your gods, and may God, Yahweh, show you covenant faithfulness in this land of decadence and child sacrifice and temple prostitution. May God do that for you. And Orba, she thinks about it. She weighs her options. She hears the sales pitch and says, you know what? Mother-in-law is right. I'm going to go back. She chooses the, the wide gate as we looked a few weeks back. She counts the cost, says, no, thank you. Well, do you and I, do we go the way of comfort and ease? But not only does one leave, one cleaves. Continue on to verse 8, 15 with me. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you shall go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also to you if anything but death aparts from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
She said no more. So Or believes Naomi is probably expecting Ruth to follow, but to her surprise, Ruth says, no, thank you. Been pretty convincing to not follow Naomi, and Naomi says, no, I'm, I'm going nowhere. First of all, we see a loyalty to her mother-in-law. She says, I am not going anywhere. And then she uses kind of wedding language. We already saw right here that she clung to her. She clung. That's something that we see in the Bible with, with marriages. Also, she uses stuff that we hear often. Who here went to a wedding this summer? Fair amount of people. Weddings happen often. And sometimes in the vows, you will hear, they'll, they'll say, and death, what? Do us part. In other words, I am committed in this marriage until I die or you die. Nothing is going to cause this marriage to end in divorce. But see, here she goes a step beyond that. Did you pick that up? It's not till you die. She says, I'm going to go there. And when you die, assuming you die before me, because you're the older one, I'm, no, I'm going nowhere. I'm going to stay here. And then when I die, I'm going to be buried with you. I am all in. I am committed. I am going nowhere. If, if I don't have children, so be it. I am, I am in it to win it. I am here. Isn't it great to have that kind of people in your lives? That kind of commitment. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do you have those kind of relationships? I would argue one of God's divine purposes for the local church is to have those kind of people in your life, even beyond your family members and your, your loved ones and your biological, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are all in with you. Through the mountaintops, they're, they're celebrating you, and when you are in the valley of valleys, they come alongside of you and say, you're not alone, I'm here with you. And we see that with Naomi's blessed relationship with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But it's not just that Ruth shows loyalty to Naomi. And here's the bigger picture I want us to pick up. More importantly, she shows her loyalty to the Lord. That's the bigger picture of what's going on. Ruth, and here's the beauty, Ruth has become a believer. This young woman who grew up in the land of Moab, where there was this pagan idolatry and worship somehow, some way in God's sovereign hand had opened up her eyes, had opened up her mind, had opened up her heart, and she was a believer now. Leviticus 26, 12, she's using covenant language here. Listen to what God says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And she makes that covenant language that I will be God's people and he will be my God. I'm going nowhere. And she hears that sales pitch and she doesn't bite. Why doesn't she bite? Because it seems so foolish to follow her advice. John 6 we read in John 6, there's a point in Jesus' earthly ministry where many of his disciples turned back and left. Where Jesus' popularity at that point, it started to wane a little bit. He started to becoming a little less popular. That in today's language, they started canceling and trying to cancel him. 
And Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And if Naomi was there, based on what she said, she would say, you need to go away. Why are you still here? And Simon Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, there is one choice here. It's Yahweh. All the other choices are not really choices because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and I will never try to eat anything else besides of that. And that's what's going on here. Later on, we'll read next week when Pastor Andy preaches in Ruth chapter 2, we'll see that she, Boaz commends her that she is one under whose wings you have come to take refuge, the Lord, Yahweh. In spite of everything that Naomi says, Ruth looks and says, I want that, I need that, and that is all that matters to me. Well, even if God's providence is bitter in your life, are you committed to him like that? Do you see the value and worth of Jesus? What if you lose your job tomorrow? You have no money. Can't really celebrate Christmas. If you have Jesus, is that enough? What if you win the lottery tomorrow and you have money beyond measure, but you don't have Jesus? Is that really anything? And that's what we're seeing here with Ruth. Ruth's willing to leave her family, leave her land because, man, I have the Lord and I want to be where the Lord is and I want to, I, I want to follow him. That is the beauty of, of what Ruth is doing. So we see the providential context, the suffering, the sorrow. We see the painful choice. One leaves, one cleaves. Let's wrap up our time as we look at the purposeful climax. As we see God at work, he is in the move. He's on the move. But here's the problem. Naomi has tunnel vision. Read verse 19. So the two of them, they went on until they came to, Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, like we said earlier, what she says is biblical and truthful. And she has a good theology here that she is acknowledging. What has happened to me is God's hand at work. Like Job, she knows who rules and reigns. She's given God proper credit. But the problem is she is bitter in the midst of it. She's heavy-hearted from everything that has happened. Now, in the, in the Bible, names are important. You and I, we say, we pick names for our kids because it'll sound good with the last name. Because we like it, or maybe we do it because a family member had it, and we want to carry on the, the legacy of a, of a grandparent. Or, but, like, names meant something in the Bible. And Naomi's name means pleasant. So she gets back. Now, I don't think she probably did a name change where she went down to the BMV and got her license changed and went to Social Security. But she says, you can't call me... Naomi anymore. You need to call me Mara. Mara is significant because it means bitter, but it doesn't just mean bitter. It was a particular place in redemptive history. Exodus 15 begins, beautiful chapter, God's people singing. 
And they get to Mara, they try to drink the water, and it is bitter. And they can't drink it, and immediately they start complaining and whining, and this is the worst, and God brought us out of Egypt for this. And God allows the water, he turns the water through Moses into, to make it sweet. So when Mara, when you hear that, it's, it's God's people being ungrateful in the midst of providence. That her life has become very bitter. And I, 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 I caution us to not judge her too much. Because I think we all can testify times in our lives where life has been bitter. And we've been frustrated with God's providence. That's, I mean, that's the human experience. The psalmists, there's a lot of times where they seem kind of bitter in the moment, but there's that hope that they have. And we're going to see, ultimately, Ruth start, or Naomi start developing that hope again. Well, is life bitter for you right now? Are you struggling? Because in a room this size, I guarantee there's some people here that can identify with Naomi. Your name might not mean pleasant, but you could change your name tomorrow because, man, life has been tough. Life has been difficult. I'm struggling through this this physical ailment, maybe a disease. Maybe it's something that is life-threatening. Maybe it's financial difficulties. Maybe it's relationship. Whatever it is, this book is for you because we're going to see God at work in the bitterness. But not only is she bitter, she's, she's kind of blind. What does she say here? She is empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. I, I, this week there was a point we were getting ready to go and I was looking for my phone and I was like, I have no idea where my phone is. I literally, maybe I'm going, getting old. I mean, I am getting old. There's no maybe about that. But, and then like I had this epiphany moment that the last 30 minutes I watched a TV show on my phone. Literally within three minutes of where's my phone? And it was just like, are you serious? It's right there, Joe. Like, come on, you're better than this. Naomi is looking at these people saying, God has brought me back empty. I have nothing. And guess who's right beside her? Ruth. I mean, almost like, I wonder if Ruth is like, hello. Like, thanks. Thanks, thanks, mother-in-law. The truth is, I, I came across this Chinese proverb, without rain, life would be a desert. She returns to a barren land, and guess what time it is? Time of harvest. She's coming back, and she's just, she's not seeing it. She's not seeing that God is here. You're not alone. You have Ruth. You're no longer in a time of famine. I have brought back a harvest. Your fortune is about to change, Naomi. You need to stop being tunnel vision. You need to open up your eyes. Romans 8, 28 says, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think the harsh reality is there are many people sitting in here right now looking up at me that they see the cup half empty. 
rather than half full. They look at life and they see all the things that they don't have. They look at life and they see all the no's that God has given. They see all the things that they desire. They, don't. they see all the things that their neighbor has or these other people in your life. And it just seems not fair. And all the while, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's just narrow it to that. You have Jesus, you have more than enough. And he's not abandoned you. Well, do you have that kind of tunnel vision? Are you missing out on the blessings? Last week we looked in the Psalms and and what did we end with? Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And man, Naomi needed to hear that in the moment because she did not see that she had, I mean, we know the big picture. She had a huge blessing standing right beside her. So we not only see Naomi's tunnel vision, lastly, we see God's total vision Verse 22, so Naomi returns, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The plan of God is unfolding as he planned. Understand that. I think the danger is, is we see a passage like this, and we think, wow, God is really good at improvising on the fly. God is not the master chef that is in the kitchen and he's cooking and oh, I'm missing the one ingredient, but I'm so good at cooking. I'll just go into the pantry. I'll pick something like it and I can make it work because I'm, I'm a gifted chef. No, that's not what God is doing on. From the beginning, this was God's plan and purpose. Even using the foolishness and I would argue the sin of Elimelech, God is carrying out his will. We see this in the life of Joseph, remember? Joseph's brother, they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and Joseph is able to look back, Genesis 15, 19. Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, the book of Ruth, God is at work. God used the Lemonek's foolish decisions to go to Moab because he had a really important person he needed to bring back. Not just for the lineage of his son, but ultimately for somebody whose name would be in the Lamb's Book of Life. He brought a foreign person into God's covenant people. Proverbs 16.32 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Well, does God know what he's doing in your life today? Do you see that whatever is going on right now, that he has got this? Not only do we see the plan of God, we see the present from God is coming. Because that's the bigger picture. And, and the last service on Christmas Eve will conclude with chapter 4 of, of Ruth. And we'll see that the surprise I'm terrible if I buy a gift I really like for somebody waiting to give the gift. I'm the worst at it. Because I'm, I'm so enamored with like seeing the response to see how excited the person will be getting the gift that I, I'm just, so I'm not the best secret keeper. So don't share a secret with me. I'm going to probably struggle trying to hold it. Like, it's so exciting when I see Naomi and she's just so frustrated. I'm like, but Naomi man, you've got the gift. It's coming, and it's going to blow your mind. You see, her grandchild is going to be in Jesus's family tree. Matthew 1, 5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, as we're going to meet Boaz next week, by, by Rahab, 
And well, we're not going to meet Boaz. Uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll not meet Rahab. We'll meet Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Ruth, kind of family tree it, Ruth is the great-grandmother of who? David. And she's a believer. And not only that, salvation is coming through the events. It's the story behind the story. Ordinary people through the mundane decisions of life, God is planning his purposes. Sound a little bit like the birth narrative? A young couple about to get married, a surprising pregnancy, all of that. And in the midst of it, something so bigger is going on. Salvation is coming. Or are you where you want to be? Are you being honest with God? Do you see the Lord is in everything going on right now in your life? I remember, I, I don't know if it was a Christmas gift or a birthday gift, but at one point, I remember a gift I got as a child that I really liked. It was a detective kit. I was going to be like Sherlock Holmes. And the one thing the detective gift had was a fingerprinting kit. The love of all parents. Like, hey, can we get something that gets ink and powder all over the house? And, and I got that. My mom, I'm assuming, is the one that bought it for me. And, and I remember doing it, and I mean, I was not good at it. Uh, and let's be honest, the however $30 or $20 detective kit, not the highest end technology. So like fingerprints all kind of look the same as I'm trying to, do, to decide who was in the cookie jar literally in my house of three people at that point. But, you know, that's what you do. But fingerprints, I mean, fingerprints are pretty amazing. No fingerprints are identical. They are really evident of hands. And even as we go on in today's world, we don't stop at fingerprints. We can do DNA. And, and man, if somebody has been somewhere, if somebody has touched somewhere, we can really show the evidence. And I think right now, as we, we look at chapter one, if we, we busted out our detective kit and we decided to do some fingerprint checking in chapter one, I think there is one fingerprint we're going to see all over this chapter, and whose is it? It's Yahweh's. You see, and, and the same God whose fingerprints are all over the book of Ruth, if we were to get out our detective kit and check the fingerprints all over your life, guess whose fingerprints we're going to see? Yahweh, he, he is at work. He is working for your good and his glory. That means the highs and the lows, the victories, the defeats, the celebrations and, and the struggle. He is at work. The book of Ruth is proof that he never stops working. He's always at work. That's why it's the story behind the story that in a time of darkness where there was no hope, the light was coming, hope was in the midst or are you trusting God today? Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge, Lord, that often we allow our circumstances to blind our vision. We allow situations where life is so overwhelming that we get so frustrated, so discouraged with your providence that we either question your goodness or we question your power. But God, I pray for anybody here today who is in that, that season in life where life feels very much like Naomi speaks of, that it's bar, that is Mara, that it is bitter. 
that God, you would use this Advent season to allow them to see the good, that you would allow them to see the the silver lining, that they would be able to uh, understand that there is a blessing they have because they have Christ, and if they have Christ, they have everything. May we make much of Jesus this Advent, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond with a song of worship?